Morning, church. So in this fallen, desperate world in which we live, everybody wants some good news, don't we? Isaiah 52, 7, 800 years before Christ said, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring glad tidings of good things, who proclaim salvation, who says to Zion, Our God reigns. When Jesus was born, which is the very definition of the gospel, it means good news. Good news actually came to mankind. Why is the news that Jesus Christ came to earth so good? It's the best news we can ever have, that we can be saved from our sins, the punishment we deserve because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross and that and that alone. He came so that we could have forgiveness of sin, peace with God, and a new life in Him. For the person who receives the gift of salvation, there's no more shame, no more condemnation, because our account has been wiped clean by the blood of the Lamb. We are perfect. We are redeemed. We are sanctified. We are holy because of what Jesus did. And, and that's not enough. If that were the only part of the good news, you would think that'd be enough. But God gives so much more. And he offers peace to all those who would willingly surrender themselves to his leading. He gives us rest for our soul. And he takes away the sin that so easily binds us. Keep that in the back of your mind as you open your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And again, we're going to begin a very crucial chapter within all of Scripture as we continue in that verse-by-verse study from the Apostle Paul. Let's catch up where we were from last week really quick. Last week, the Apostle Paul spoke about the proper order of things within Christ's church. That God is a God of peace, and in order to have peace within His body, it has to have order. The goal of coming together, we said, is not that we're blessed. It's not that we're entertained, but it's that we edify the rest of the body and we glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul clearly taught over and over again that the purpose of spiritual gifts is to edify the entire body of Christ and to lift Christ up. So there has to be order. And we, we found out that God actually uses his church, the body, in order to grow us up in order to make us more like Christ. And and the plans he has for us are good, and as a body, he uses that. And so the God of peace, again, desires his body to have peace. By submitting to God, by submitting to that God of peace, we can enjoy a state of quietness that transcends all circumstances. We can have quiet in the storm. With Jesus in your boat, you can smile in the storm. That was a song we used to sing in summer camp. And so now today, again, a very crucial chapter, we're going to learn about the meaning and the history of the gospel. The gospel. And this is almost like a courtroom scene where the Apostle Paul goes to the church at Corinth, almost like a legal matter, and he's going to present witnesses and proof. This is the gospel. Here it is. And that's what today is all about. What's the gospel? And it's kind of part one of two parts. Next week, there'll be more witnesses. But if you have your sermon notes, Roman numeral one, the declaration of Paul. If your Bibles are open, 1 Corinthians 15, begin with verse one. The apostle Paul says, 
Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So Paul begins with the word moreover, which means beyond what's already been said, in addition to what's already been said, everything I taught you about order in the church, everything I've taught you about gifts, moreover, in addition to that. And remember, the goal of coming together, right, is to glorify Christ and to edify the whole body. And so as Paul begins chapter 15 here, and many commentators say this is the most crucial book of all the Bible, because it declares the gospel by which we are saved. Without the gospel, not a one of us are saved. And so it's such a crucial book. And he's going to use the gospel and the resurrection of Jesus Christ as evidence that Jesus is the head of his church. Notice he starts out, I declare to you the gospel which I also preach to you. When I was in Bible college, I was told a few things right out of the gate, but one of the things I was told was if someone ever asks you the definition of the gospel and you do not take them to 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 3, you get an automatic fail on that test. You can go down the Romans road, you can tell them all about the crucifixion of Christ, you can do whatever, but if you don't point to 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 3, you're going to fail that test. Because right here is the definition of the gospel. You know, the gospel, again, simply means good news. And there's a lot of people out there that are peddling, quote unquote, good news that isn't so great. Right? Even the cults today, you might hear cults say, this is another gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't shout it out if you know who says that. There's one cult in particular that has another gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm going to give you a verse to tell them the next time they tell you it's another gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul said this in Galatians 1.8. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than what we've preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. This is another gospel of Jesus Christ. No, it's not. There's one gospel of Jesus Christ, and we're about to get into it. Only one gospel, and it's really good news that can save you for eternity. Jesus came, his mission statement, I came to save lost sinners. There in your notes, Jesus, God the Son, came to earth as a baby to grow up and take the cross in our place so that we could have forgiveness of sin, peace with God, and new life through his sacrifice. This is the best news ever since the world began. And then notice what Paul says, which also you received, in which you stand. Now, I know there's the age-old argument since Jesus was on the face of the planet. Did God choose me, or did I choose God? Yes. No one can come to the Father unless he's drawn by the Lord. We know that. But also, we must receive his free gift. Look again at verse 2. By which also you are saved, 
if you hold fast that word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. There in your notes, David Guzik said, the gospel is only of benefit if it is received and if one will stand in it. John 1.11, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. But, oh, that word, as many as receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. So his own would not receive him. But if you will, he'll give you the right to become his kid. His own would not receive him. And, and so Paul said the Corinthian Christians were standing on the gospel as their foundation. This is the firm rock in which I stand, the gospel. They were saved by this gospel. And, and this gives me hope. And it should give some of you hope. We've gone through this entire book, and remember the sin and the carnality and all the things that the Corinthian Christians were being corrected by Paul over and over and over again. I mean, they were just desperate, sinning, division-causing, immoral people. And yet Paul says, yet they're standing on the gospel as the way of salvation. Isn't that great? You could say, look in the mirror and say, but I, but I, but I, but I. But are you standing on the gospel as your foundation for salvation? That's the difference. The gospel tells us that we can be saved by grace alone. And by the way, gospel, here's an acrostic for you. God's riches at Christ's expense. You receive God's riches at Christ's expense. It's grace. So you can be saved by grace alone through faith in Christ alone, and not by anything you can earn or do. You can never work hard enough. You can never build a ladder tall enough. You can never build a bridge big enough to get to Jesus. It's impossible. There in your notes. The fact that the Corinthians were trusting in what Jesus did on the cross for the forgiveness of their sin and to grant them salvation was proof that their faith was not in vain. You see, if they weren't trusting what Christ did, if they did not believe what Jesus did, then their faith was in vain. If they're believing in anything else, it's vanity. People are saved from their sins by this gospel because it's powerful. And may we never, never, never forget how powerful that gospel is. Some of us have been in church a long time, and so what we have is like a vaccine against the gospel. We've received just enough of it not to have the real thing, but we got a little bit of it. And so we hear messages like this and we go, Rich, I could preach that message. I've heard the gospel all my life. Gosh, wake me when this is over. The gospel has saved your wretched soul. I shouldn't say that. It saved my wretched soul. The gospel's powerful. May you never water down the gospel. It cost God his own son on the cross. The gospel makes a way for a wretch like me to be saved. And boy, that's good news. I'm going to get fired up this morning. Anyway, <laughs> Roman numeral two, the message of the gospel. Look at verse three. Paul goes on. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to 
the scriptures. Notice, according to the scriptures. Where's Paul going to for his evidence? According to the scripture. Paul says, I delivered to you that which I also received. Paul didn't make this up. This isn't some wonderful story that Paul thought about and said, you know, this would make a good kid's book or something. It was communicated to him by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so he said, that which I delivered to you, first I received it. I received it myself. Now there's two essential Christian doctrines within these verses that we need to talk about. These are essential, okay? When I, we've talked about non-essential things like, you know, speaking in tongues or this or that, and we say those are gray areas and let love cover it and they're non-essential. There's two things here that are essential. They, they are part of the historic Christian faith. And if you don't believe them, you're not saved. Come fight with me afterwards and I'll show you all through scripture. But number one, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That's an essential, folks. That's essential for the historic Christian faith. There in your notes, the fact that the only almighty creator God of the universe would die for the sins of those he created goes beyond reason. It goes beyond reason. It doesn't make any sense. And not only did he die for my sins, but he died a criminal's death on the cross after being beaten as a criminal. That goes beyond reason all human understanding. But there's no doubt that he died. There were so many witnesses to his death. There were so many witnesses that watched him up on that cross. And there's no way of getting around it. His own family was there watching him be crucified. Right? His disciples were there. The Romans were there. there were all these hostile accusers were there. So many people watched Jesus breathe his last as that Roman soldier stuck that spear into his side to make sure he was dead. So many witnesses. You can't get around it. The earth went dark. There was an earthquake. The rock split open. The curtain in the temple rent from the top to the bottom. 18-inch thick curtain rent in half. There are so many witnesses. You can't get around it. But the Greek philosophers would scoff at this. Because there's no way, think about the, the common sense of this. You created this thing, it rebelled against you, and you were willing to die for it? The Greek philosophers would say, oh, come on now. How stupid do you think we are? Right? And, and the Jews couldn't accept it either, because here's our Messiah. The promised Messiah dying for us? No. No way. And so the question begs, why did the Messiah, why did the Savior have to die? If he's creator, couldn't he think of another way to save us? You'd go, why? It just doesn't make sense. Hebrews 9.22, and according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And catch this, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. There's no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of innocent blood and everyone's born in natural sin. Who's going to die for you? I can die for you, but it won't mean a thing. It won't cleanse you of your sin. And and so Christ died for our sins. Do you understand? You know, 
back in the day, the, the, the Catholic Church and all these different people used to argue who put Jesus on the cross. You know, was it the Catholics? Was it the Jews? Was it the Romans? No, it was me. I, I put Jesus on the cross. My sin put Jesus on the cross. It, it was only my sin that made him go on there. And love for me, it, it wasn't politics. It wasn't a people group. It was sin. Sin put Jesus on the cross. And then notice what Paul says, and this is awesome, according to the Scriptures. There are over 300 prophecies of Christ in the Old Testament alone. And the odds are astronomical of one man fulfilling those, and we won't get into that. But Paul says, according to the Scriptures, Christ died. Not only according to the New Testament Scriptures, Christ died, but according to the Old Testament, he had to die. And the Jews missed it. Earlier, Paul alluded to one Old Testament passage when he said, in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, maybe you remember this, for indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. And you'd go, what does all that mean? Well, the concept of a Passover lamb comes out of the book of Exodus. Maybe you remember. Israel was down in Egypt, held as slaves. Moses goes on down there, and all these plagues happen. Let my people go, and plague one, plague two, all the way to plague ten. The tenth plague was the Passover. God himself said, look, I'm going to send the angel of death over Egypt. And every household that does not have the blood of the lamb on its doorpost, I'm going to kill the firstborn in that household. God promised, if you will, go and kill a lamb and put its blood on the doorpost, I will spare the firstborn of that house. That event foreshadowed Jesus coming as the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world and therefore saving us. John the Baptist himself said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The purpose of Jesus' death could not be any clearer. It resounds all throughout the Old and New Testament. Jesus died in our place to give us atonement and forgiveness of sin. And over and over again we're told, He died once for all, for all of our sin. Again, Isaiah, 800 years before Christ ever walked the planet, said this of the Messiah. Isaiah 53, 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So the first Christian essential we find here, Jesus died for our sins. That's an essential. The second essential is this. He was buried, and he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Not only did he die, but he was buried, and he rose again. Again, Corinth prided themselves on Greek education and philosophy, and some of the elite 
Corinthians just couldn't get past this. They did believe in an afterlife, but only a spiritual one. Jesus couldn't bodily raise. That just goes against our education. Dr. Craig Keener said, Some Greeks, like the Epicureans, denied even an afterlife. Yet the ones who did expect an afterlife for the soul could not conceive of a bodily resurrection. It did not make sense to them. And so Paul is teaching this to correct this false teaching of theirs that there's no bodily resurrection. Yes, there is. There in your notes, the resurrection of Christ is the proof that Jesus was who he said he was. If Jesus had only died, he'd be no different than the other religious leaders who have died. Again, I can die. Doesn't do a thing. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he, God the Father, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to actually become sin for us, and in exchange, we become the righteousness of God in him. But this is an oxymoron. Because although the gospel message tells us that our sin was poured out on Jesus and he took the punishment of our sin, yet he remained a perfect Savior. How does that happen? And, and so why did Jesus need to be raised from the dead? This is, a, this is a head scratcher. Because it's by his death, by his blood, that our sins are forgiven. So why did he need to be raised from the dead? There in your notes. Was delivered up for our offenses and was raised because of or for our justification. Our justification. I've been walking with the Lord for a long, long time. And I love to debate and love to argue about different passages and different things. But the one that I've been stuck on my whole entire Christian walk is that I'm justified. You see, I understand forgiveness, right? I have children. I need to understand forgiveness. But I don't understand saying that I'm justified in my sin. Sin is sin and God is holy. How can I be justified? And the only way I can explain it, and this is a lame man's attempt to explain it, but the only way I can explain it is this, that God the Father looks down on Rich O'Toole and he sees God the Son living in me. And so he says, all my works, everything I've ever done, is justified because of who lives in me. Because there is no way you can tell me that my sin, in my sin I was justified, yet God says, I'm justified. John Walvoord said, the resurrection is stated as proof of the effect of Christ's death. Having accomplished redemption by his death, Jesus was raised for our justification. And the fact that Jesus was three days in the grave, we find pictures of that all throughout the Old Testament. And I'll mention just a few, but there's several. But if you look in the book of Hosea, you look in the book of Psalms, and of course Jonah, right? Three days in the grave, and then he rose again. And so Paul would say, because you know all these Epicureans, all these philosophers are sitting there, Paul, show us proof! Okay, Roman numeral three. Eyewitness testimony. How's that for some proof? Look at verse 5. And that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. 
After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, which was 30 years later, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as one by born at a due time. Peter Hawkins said, many critics have a hard time believing that Jesus rose at all. And so Paul had to quash these rumors in this congregation saying that Jesus never rose again at all. And so people were questioning the fundamentals of the Christian faith. And so Paul says, let's start with some witnesses. If you've ever been to court, right, and you call some eyewitnesses, if you had five eyewitnesses, you think the court would believe you? If you had 25 eyewitnesses, would the court believe you? If you had 500 eyewitnesses, would the court believe you? And by the way, a lot of those 500 were willing to die for the truth. Not a lot of witnesses are willing to do that. Matthew 28, 1. Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. And his countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook, I bet they did, for the fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen. As he said, there in your notes, there were actually no eyewitness, eyewitnesses during the actual resurrection of Christ, but there were many sightings after the resurrected Christ. I'm going to name just a few really quickly. We don't have time to get into all of them, but hear this list of eyewitnesses. Again, Mary Magdalene. Uh, he spoke to the woman there, uh, the angel did. And then the women went back and told Peter and John, maybe you remember the story that Peter and John raced to the tomb, and John won, of course. Jesus appeared to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, which is one of my favorite stories. Are you the only one in Jerusalem that doesn't know what happened? And Jesus is sitting there explaining himself. I love that. How about the disciples, 130 disciples that were in the upper room shaking for fear of the Jews, and Jesus just comes blowing through the wall? Hello! Hey, you guys! How about when Peter and the other guys were fishing in John chapter 21? Jesus is cooking fish on the shore. I love that. 500 eyewitnesses in Galilee, and again, most of them still alive 30 years later. Here's the greatest one. You know, no prophet holds any honor in his hometown. If you've got siblings, you'll love this one. James and Jude, the half-brothers of Jesus, would not believe their brother was Messiah until after the resurrection, and then they became followers of Christ. If your own siblings believe you, that's saying a lot. I'll introduce you to my siblings someday. The Legal Law website said, when it comes to proving guilt or innocence of any party with a legal case, witnesses are absolutely crucial how the verdict plays out. An eyewitness is a person who actually saw what happened. They were there. They got to testify. So Paul calls upon his first witness and he says, he was seen by Cephas. That's Peter, right? 
We're told in the Gospel of Luke that Peter saw the risen Jesus on several occasions, but one, again, the, the, my favorite one, is when Jesus told Peter, you're going to be a fisher of men. He gets tired of waiting for Jesus to come back, so he gathers a couple of his buddies, and they go out fishing. They fish all night, don't get a bite. Then all of a sudden, Jesus calls from the shore, Hey, cast the net on the other side. Can you imagine a professional fisherman? Thanks, pal. Throws the net on the other side, can't even pull it in, and all of a sudden, John says, that's Jesus. I love that appearance. The next witness, Paul points out, are the apostles. John 20, verse 19. Then that same day at evening, beginning the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Eyewitness, look here. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, now I send you. And then finally, Paul says, Last of all, he was seen by me also as one by one born out of time. Some commentators believe that what Paul is saying, born out of due time here, was that he was saying, I'm a Jewish man, and the nation of Israel will not accept their Messiah until mid-trib, and so I was born out of due time. But there in your notes, Paul considered the Lord's appearance to him on the road to Damascus as the last post-resurrection appearance of Jesus. All right, so for practical application, the evidence isn't enough. The evidence isn't enough. And you might say, wait a minute, you just told us about 500 and some odd witnesses. What do you mean the evidence is enough? It's not enough. It's just not enough, and I'm going to explain to you why. David Guzik said, the collective testimony of the witnesses is overwhelming. There in your notes. Not only did they see Jesus after his death, but they saw him in a manner which revolutionized their faith and trust in him. There is more than enough evidence for a court of law within the ancient writings, the eyewitness accounts, and everything else that Jesus is who he said he was, and that he was buried, and that he rose on the third day. But with all this irrefutable evidence, all of it available today, that evidence, hear me, won't save a single person. That evidence will not save you. You see, heaven's a perfect place, completely sinless. And if God lets even a little bit of sin into heaven, it stops being heaven. So a person must accept the gospel. They must accept the free gift of Jesus Christ in order to be born again and enter heaven. Listen to Hebrews 11.6. The writer says, But without faith, that's trust in God, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must first believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So having faith, trust in the Lord, requires two things. Number one, there in your notes, faith means that we believe the Lord exists. And it goes beyond saying, I believe in a God, right? 
I believe in a higher power. I believe somebody must have created something. It goes beyond that. Faith is believing the triune God of the Bible. That God the Son, Jesus Christ, came, died for your sins, was buried, and rose on the third day. It's not just belief in a God. Listen to what James said in James 2.19. And this one should hit you between the eyes. You believe that there's one God? You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Okay, the demons know there's a God. The demons have been there. They know, and yet they're not saved. So number two, faith requires a person to believe that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So we got to believe that the God of the Bible wants to reward us. He's seeking after us. He wants a relationship with us. Diligently, I looked it up, means to investigate, to scrutinize, to seek out, to crave, to yearn, to beg. And I was like, wow. So those who diligently seek him get a personal, intimate relationship with him. Those who diligently seek him get the promise of heaven. Those who diligently seek him are positionally perfect and righteous in his eyes. Those who diligently seek him receive the peace of God that surpasses all human understanding. When we stop and realize who this God is, and that he's more interested in a relationship with us than we're with him, we have nothing left to fear. All fear is gone. And the final reward for those who diligently seek him is a renewed mind. A renewed mind. And then it goes on and on and on and on. But we need to remember who Jesus is. And that by believing in him, we can have life in his name. You know, we've been given the Holy Spirit. As believers, the Holy Spirit comes to live within us. And we've been given this wisdom, right? And this help that we can walk in the peace of God without worry or anxiety. And what it comes down to is surrender. Faith is knowing that what God has said, he will do. He will do what he said he will do. So if you're discouraged today, if you're downtrodden today, if, if something's bugging you today, I would beg you, give it up. Give it to God. There in your notes, Jesus not only loved you enough to take the cross for you, he wants an intimate, personal relationship with you. And that's crazy. And when you encounter God like that and you trust him, he actually calls you a friend of God. Imagine that. Do you understand that every person in this world needs to hear this good news? Every person needs to hear this good news. And, and you might say, how can I deliver this good news? It's really simple. Really simple. We're called to be witnesses of his. Not only witnesses that we can say the gospel, or we can point them to the gospel in the Bible, but witnesses. How does it look, Christian, on Monday morning? How does it look on Wednesday? How does it look on Thursday night when all hell is breaking loose, literally, in your life? How does it look? Are you trusting? So today is the day of salvation. Today is. You know pretty odd but when I was in the Bay Area I was helping my mentor with his church 
I remember very clearly, he, he's definitely an evangelist, and every week he'd do a message like this. And I remember very clearly that, you know, a lot of younger people thought, eh, I got a lot of time. And a 16-year-old was given a brand new Corvette by his parents. And that afternoon, he wrapped it around a telephone pole, and that was his last day alive. And you think, you know, I think I got a lot of life left in me. My body still thinks I'm 25. Or my mind does. My body knows better. But, <laughs> but we don't know when we're going to be called home. And the gospel makes a way for me to have relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and let me explain to you what the Bible says our condition is prior to the gospel. Not just me, not just you, but every single person. This is your condition if you're not in a relationship with Jesus Christ. You're spiritually dead. You're under the control of Satan. Incapable of avoiding sinful passions. Condemned because of sin and completely without hope. So what must I do to be saved? Man has sinned against God. God demands perfection and no perfect people. So what are we going to do? Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single person alive has sinned. But Jesus took our place. And he made us perfect if we will accept that great exchange. Romans 5.8, But God demonstrates his own love in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died. When did he die for me? While I was still in my sin. That's crazy. And so by grace alone, an undeserved gift, through faith in Christ alone, you could be saved. Salvation, by the way, is not found in religion. Salvation is not found in good works. Salvation is only found if your sins are covered by the blood of the Lamb. Call on the name of the Lord. Tell Him you sin. It's not a mystery anyway. He knows. And ask Him to forgive you. Last there in your notes, ask Jesus to take over your life so that He becomes both Lord and King. And turn away from your sin and turn toward Him. You see, before the death of Christ, there was no way to be saved. There was none. And the real gospel tells us that Jesus makes a way. When there was no way, no way possible, Jesus came. Died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. So that we can be friends of God, children of God, saved forever and cleansed without condemnation, and enjoy his peace. Jesus died to save us. He rose again for our justification. Wow. Wow. And so I'm going to tell you like my Bible teachers told me. If you're ever asked where the gospel is and you don't point it here, you failed. <laughs> totally, totally kidding. There's no test on this one. But there is going to be a test someday. And here's the test. One day we will all stand before the righteous throne of God. And you only really have two choices. You can stand before a perfect righteous God in your own holiness and see how that works out for you. Or you can ask Jesus Christ to cleanse you of all sin. And when you stand before God the Father, he sees his son in you and says, you're completely justified. Justified, just as if I didn't sin. Justified. To me, that's amazing. It's the gospel that makes the way. So this morning, I'm going to ask you, 
I'm not going to do an altar call or any of those crazy things, but I'm going to ask you, ask yourself, if you walked out of here this morning, God forbid something happened, are you ready to stand before a holy God? Because there's only two choices, your own righteousness or his. And I'm telling you, your own righteousness isn't going to make it. So there's going to be some people in the back who'd love to pray with you. If, if you want to talk about salvation, or if you want to talk about something else, if you need prayer, we count it a joy. And I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up, and I'm going to pray. Then there'll be some people in the back. Don't miss heaven. That's all I would tell you. Don't miss heaven. It's free. He loved you that much. Don't miss heaven. Father, we love you. And the fact that you loved us enough to send Jesus, the philosophers missed it. The Jews missed it. <laughs> Carnal man misses it. It, it. it just sounds too good to be true. But Jesus, you proved it over and over again. You even prove it now by hearing our prayers, joining us, filling us with your spirit. We love you. God, we can't offer you anything but a broken, messed up heart. And Lord, I've discovered that's all you want. So I pray, God, if there's somebody in here this morning who does not know you as Lord and Savior, you do your work. Lord, get them. Cause them to know you. Cause them to accept the free gift of salvation through your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we're going to praise you now because you're worthy to be praised. We thank you for it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening, and we hope that you are blessed. If you'd like to find out more info about our church or any other resources like sermon notes or things like that, you can check out our website at livingfaithclamath.com. Make sure, if you haven't already, to subscribe or like us on whatever your favorite podcast app is. You'll find us at Living Faith Fellowship Klamath Falls. Again, be blessed. Be blessed.